Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Meredith Ann Fuller. Meredith is a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and author who has published poetry in national magazines, including The Nation and The American Scholar. Her book of poems, Prayer Wheels, was published by Pourboire Press. She and her husband, James Loyton, moved from Massachusetts to Omaha, Nebraska, four years ago. Of herself, Meredith writes, My heart is a migrant, perforce I moved to Nebraska. By happy startled choice, I live where the kindness of strangers is usually genuine, and niceness is like a nervous tick, or a dessert you don't really have room for, but it would be rude to say no. I left the ocean and a big city for a home in Omaha, my lunge line tethered to a big sky. Rolling prairie makes me swoon, the edge of the world cresting, disappearing, and reappearing, and I might just end up driving right into the clouds and getting seriously lost. I like being a stranger in a strange land. We are all the other, even if we don't know it. In the Mayan language, in Lakech means I am another yourself. As a writer, I hope to make you fall in love with strangers and people you don't approve of. Published by Mountain Water Press, Meredith's latest novel, Quarry, also featuring artwork by Joan Anderson, is now available in hardback. Meredith, thank you for coming on the show. I'm delighted to be here. So in your novel, Quarry, the protagonist Rose at one point says she is not interested in the history as taught by teachers, but in the history of people. And that got me wondering, is that a feature of your own character? And if it is, does that show up for you in certain ways? How does that show up? Hmm. Um, I think it is a feature of my own character. I'm fascinated when people tell stories that are about their histories. And I enjoy reading some history, but I really hold on to the stories that people tell about their own histories. So, yes, I just think that's true for most of us. Do you think about and adapt the stories that you have encountered of the people that you've come across in your life, this, this vast spectrum of intriguing people? Do you explore and exploit those stories in, in some creative, adaptive way? Very much so. Um, you know, it's sometimes said that a fiction writer is like a magpie picking up bright bits and pieces of things. And in the case of an author, trying to make a whole out of that. And when a story comes to me, it's always some detail, some character, some piece of history that I hear about, um, which gets it going and fires my imagination. And then I, of course, do a lot of research to try to ground it and make it vivid and authentic. Before we expand on that, perhaps I should ask you just to give give us all a brief overview of the story that underpins and runs through your latest novel, Quarry. Yes. Well, Quarry is a, is a uh, three-generation mystery. It's a psychological mystery, and that's based around my experience that um, most families have secrets, and in the case of Quarry, where we're talking about immigrant families, Finnish and Irish immigrant families, um, in addition to the 
ordinary secrets that people carry. They're the secrets that have to do with painful histories that caused immigration. You know, most people don't immigrate because they feel like it. They don't leave their, a place where people speak their language, a place where they have generations of family history, unless something disrupts them. So in this case, um, the history of Finns is very central, American Finns, um, also Irish, but the, the reveal, the, the novel really reveals a lot of the untold history of Finns who were huge in the American labor movement. A lot of what we take for granted now, safety in workplaces, a decent wage, uh, a two-day weekend, many, many things. Um, Finns, probably more than any other ethnic group, contributed to that progress and put their lives on the line striking in places like the Upper Peninsula, Massachusetts, many places. I had no idea about that connection between Finnish immigrants and some of those initial elements propelling the uh, the labor movement. And I, I wanted to ask, why was Finland and Finnish immigrants such a central uh, thread in the novel? So that would seem to be one part of it. But perhaps I should ask the question more broadly, why Finland and, and why Finnish immigrants? Yeah, that's where we come back to a very small personal experience, which then was like an exploding seed. When I was living on Cape Cod with my husband, a friend told me that there was a place we could do sauna, take sauna in uh, Massachusetts, not far from the town or city of Quincy. And I love sauna. And she said, oh, well, this is different from anything you've ever experienced. It's an old Finnish temperance camp, which may once upon a time have been an old Finnish socialist hall. And it's in the middle of the woods on a dirt road. And sure enough, so we went. And the only reason I, a non-Finn, was there and my friend was able to be there who's not Finnish was that the community could no longer afford to pay the taxes on their land and their buildings without opening the summer hall to um, people who are not part of the community a certain number of um, weekend days of the summer. So I found myself in this world um, that felt utterly out of time. Um, where many people were speaking Finnish, where some of the elders really had very little English, and where in the women's sauna, which was next to the men's sauna, you could um, hear the voices of these Finns of different ages. And you'd have sometimes the oldest women sitting on the hottest seats at, near the top, because that's what they they knew how to take that heat. And you would also have little babies in buckets, they called them bucket babies, in cool water to keep them from getting too hot on the floor of the sauna. And sometimes there would be long silences. You'd hear the men's laughter on the men's side and the um, sparking of the stove in between or someone throwing water on the stove on our side or the other side to increase the steam heat. Um, and then sometimes people would tell stories. And not that I understood them all. But that world, I just was fascinated and fell in love with that world. And I began interviewing people. I went back a lot. I began recording the voices of people in Quincy and asking them about their history. And then I was very moved to discover how many uh, secrets Finns carried um, because of their history of, for example, 
being on the wrong side at one point of World War II when Hitler promised to protect Finland from Russia, which had been its longtime aggressor. And that, of course, was something that haunted them back in this country. But also their years in the labor movement, because during the McCarthy era, um, to have had a strong red background was a very dangerous thing. And I had some experience of that through my father's family. So one thing led to another, and that Finnish story merged with another story, which you now know about in the book, of a, of a man um, with his own personal shame and his own history of um, living in a family full of secrets. And the story began to move. In the novel, Quarry, you capture vividly the experience that you were just describing about the sauna or sauna. Sauna, I'm learning yes. how to pronounce it. Um, you capture that really beautifully. And I wonder in hearing and appreciating other people's stories, especially that of Finnish immigrants, if there is a reaction to their stories being told as it were, outside of their close-knit community. And I wonder what sort of reaction you've had, whether it's the Finnish immigrant community or any immigrant community, to that particular aspect of, of your novel. I think that every Finn I've spoken to who's read the story um, loves the sound of scenes, then that, that is not a challenge for them. I think they feel pleased that I capture... Um, what I think you could say is a the more mystical or sacred part of that that world. Um, it's very different from the sauna in a health club, uh, a spa sauna, and so that that part has been great. Um, there were Finns who expressed an interest in seeing the book when it was done, and then cut off contact with me before the book was done, and I think. That has to do with the fact that they maybe told me more than they were entirely comfortable with. I've had that experience as a psychologist. Sometimes people will blurt things out and then not want to really revisit what you've heard for some time. But there have been a few key people, uh, a Finn in the Upper Peninsula who knows the labor movement well and who came from the Lapland part of Finland and a woman, uh, that's a man, in, in Hancock, Michigan. And then a Finn in Canada who is herself a filmmaker who had um, her own family suffered during World War II. And she has been grateful that secrets have been broached that Finns still find painful to talk about, such as the Finnish Civil War after World War I when Finns killed Finns in large numbers. It's fascinating to think, is, is it true for me to intuit from what you're saying that culturally the Finnish people are good at keeping secrets? Um, you know, many people describe them as, as having two extremes. And of course, I think that's in part true, but not entirely. They're there are probably plenty of people walking around amongst us who are pretty ordinary Finnish Americans. But I think the extremes of Finland's geography and weather and um, its placement on the edge of Russia on one side, Sweden on the other, um, the North Pole, the you know, as a as a part of uh, Finland or 
the, the endless lakes and bogs where you can get profoundly lost. Um, there's a way in which I think there's a wildness to a lot of the Finnish spirit and also a boldness. I mean, some of the great designers show that boldness, but also there's a lot of shyness to, to some Finns. And um, they, just as we've heard that about Norwegian bachelor farmers on Prairie Home Companion, um, that characterization could be applied to Finns, I think. Mm, a sort of reticence. A reticence, yeah. yes. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. about doing a lot of research and your introduction made it clear that uh, you have a background in psychology, psychoanalysis, uh, related fields. And you described the book as being a psychological mystery. And, and the more I've been reading the book, it becomes clearer, all of those facets being woven through both within the character and, and within the, the narratives. So how did your research and your own experience and academic qualifications infuse themselves in the book? And, and perhaps what I'm really asking is to puncture the stereotype that all books have some uh, autobiography. So, so perhaps there, there are elements of you in here too. Um, so maybe speak a little bit to how those elements of your experience and professional practice sort of merge into the book. Mm. My own family has said they don't recognize anybody in, in the family in the book, thank God. Um, I think my nature as an inquisitive person uh, is in the protagonist, Rose. Also, um, as with most families, there were secrets in mine, and I was considered of the four children perhaps the most implacable pursuer of what I, I thought would be the findable truths. Um, I think as a... As a psychologist, um, one of the things that interests me, and I've had quite a lot of 
um, moving experiences of is how people's personal pain or the issues that they think of as very particular to them, often if you look far enough back, and I don't mean how their mother treated them or how their father wasn't there, that kind of thing. I mean, if you really look back in their family, um, there can sometimes be a lot of transgenerational pain that's never been addressed. And that almost borders on the mystical, doesn't it? Because they may not have known those people whose distress has not been voiced. But I think, and again, coming to immigrant families, there often is a lot of anguish um, that's playing out and people don't know why. Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel as if something's missing? You know, why do I, in the case of one character, feel compelled to be a cross-dresser? You know, what are the disguises that people are wearing around me or wore in the past to survive that I'm unaware of? Um, so that's a little bit of an answer. I'm not sure if I've wandered from the question. What motivated you originally to pursue the field of psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis? Probably with the hope that I wouldn't mess up my own children. <laughs> I mean, you know, we make up these reasons later. I mean, I, you get curious reading in school and you think you're choosing a field because the field itself is interesting. And over time, you get glimpses of why your own history may have led to that. But um, I love people's stories and sitting with people as a therapist, no matter what the techniques of the therapy are important to have, you know, you really need to be able to listen and you need to have, I think, a deep pleasure in people's stories and, a, and as much as possible, cultivating a non-judgmental curiosity. Um, so, yes. I'm not very familiar with his philosophy, but, but what you were describing, this sort of openness, this blank slatedness in in meeting some other human being sounds like Martin Buber to me. Um, uh, this sort of active, open listening and presenting yourself as a completely um, receptive audience for that person. I think so, but I also think there's a tremendous need to validate um, people's emotional reactions. So you have to to really put yourself on the line emotionally at times. Um, if there's no genuine way in which you are, um, if you are not moved and aren't visibly moved by someone's story, if you're not frightened for them or with them, if you're not angry on their behalf or even with them, um, people know it. There's something very inauthentic about that. So it's subtle. You know, you do need to to withhold judgment and be open, but I think you also need to express feelings. And often for the first time, people feel something has been validated. And in a way, the novel, you know, Rose is looking, looking, looking for the validation of feelings and thoughts and wishes and fears that she has. In, in that context, it is now topical that there is a global reaction to and anxiety around immigration and immigrants. And I know that the genesis of this book perhaps predated some of the most recent examples of that, uh, both in this country and elsewhere. But in what ways do you think the book itself maybe affirms the experience of immigrants and the nature of uh, immigration in our culture? Mm -hmm. Well, Americans... Um often have not been raised with really good history courses. And I think if, um, if people looked at the violence toward, waves of violence toward immigrants in this country, 
which can be sometimes captured or pointed toward in just political cartoons in newspapers, say, um, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, that each wave of immigrants was often depicted as as rather frightening. Italian immigrants getting off the boats um, on the East Coast were depicted as monkeys, um, I mean, the, the way in which America has a long legacy in slavery as well of being fearful of the other, which they sometimes have desperately depended on, brought actively to the shore or encouraged to come and settle. The Midwest was settled often by people who were, saw advertisements that weren't luring them to come and settle for the sake of the railroads, for the sake of the pacification of the land, for the railroads. Um, so there's that history that I think this novel enables you to see, see, see the historical bits of some of that. But I also think that um, there's a way in which you see how immigrants, even if they don't feel persecuted, often feel that they, there's just no way they can share their story, and there's a loneliness in that. So I think the story shows you a lot of lonely individuals. You mentioned one character, Urho, who's a bit of a mysterious older man, and across the novel, we find out some of the sources of his bitterness and his reactivity. So I think that when we see immigrants today, we should be aware that even if they are coping fairly well, um, that they are often carrying many secrets, some of them traumatic and some of them just about cultures that they don't expect us to know about, such as Syrian culture. Um, yeah. You, in your own personal life, have been someone that has, um, you've traveled the world and you have a, a global take on how other people experience the world, because you've experienced that uh, in similar ways. So I wonder if we could join you on an expedited global tour with you. I know, for example, you've lived in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. you've traveled elsewhere. So um, perhaps take us on a little bit of a tour of some of your lived experiences in, in other countries, other communities. Hmm. Um, because my father was an author, um, and he would, after periods of making some money, say, with, with writing textbooks, take some time to go and write he, and be free to move elsewhere for a while. Um, our first experience as a family of doing that was in Mexico. So um, I lived in, in Mexico City and in San Miguel de Allende when I was 12 and 13. Um, later, I lived in London and went to school in London and let's see, I'm trying to think if there was another country I'd lived in. I visited different parts of, of Europe, but the, the really, probably the most intense experience of living in another country was Saudi Arabia. It was during the time that Osama bin Laden was found and killed. And we visited different parts of the Middle East. Um, we still have close Middle Eastern friends. It was a source and still is a source of a lot of pain to come back to this country and see a lot of very black and white thinking about the Middle East. And so I suppose I have felt an identification um, with a lot of Middle Easterners who feel that their countries, which are so different from one another, um, many people don't even know that Iran, Persian is spoken, not Arabic, that kind of thing. Just, just this identification with people who are quickly pigeonholed or are seen as fearful because they wear a headscarf. So I, I, that's some of my 
experience of living in other places. I remember attending an event with you, actually at your invitation, and it was about culture runners. And one of the gentlemen there spoke about his experience of feeling uh, as if he was attuned to some of the nuances of the human experiences, uh, different types of uh, people, just how we are. And nonetheless, finding himself in the Middle East and being surprised that he had these involuntary swift reactions that he had to recognize and control, Mm -hmm. that there was trepidation and fear. Mm -hmm. And it really disturbed him that he had that experience. And it made him think, realize rather that notwithstanding his own sense that he had a fairly progressive, broad-minded attitude, nonetheless, we live in a culture where these fears and anxieties get solidified and baked in in ways that we don't even appreciate. Why don't you solve that for us, Meredith? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any solutions for this? Well, I think it was Matthew Mazzotta who said that at that that time, an artist who's affiliated with with MIT, I think, but has done really interesting projects with communities around the country. And he was speaking about Saudi Arabia and the sort of panic um, at finding himself there. And I, I think maybe Matthew's openness about his fear is one of the best answers to your question, that if we can feel safe, which isn't always so easy to do at all, to say to another person, you know, it does frighten me to see a headscarf. I do get really worried when I see someone veiled or when I see a man with a, a beard and a short what's called a thobe, a robe, um, and sandals. You know, these are images which once we might have associated with as as little children in our parents' or generation with uh, the Jesus of the Bible. Isn't that funny? Um, a man in a, in, a, in a white robe with a beard and sandals. Now that's a pretty scary and different image. So I think some of this starts with the capacity to feel safe, even to be able to laugh and talk about being afraid of difference. From some of your ex- experiences in Saudi Arabia, are there any particular lessons that you've drawn that you've you felt the need to incorporate in some way in either your life now or in some of the creative work that you're producing? Well, there's a novel which I haven't yet marketed, which is based in Saudi Arabia. Um, but I would say, hmm, I think everything I've I've written, the, the quarry and this novel, um, which is based in Saudi Arabia, and the novel I'm working on now that's based in, in Nebraska called Undocumented, they all have to do with how our perceptions of the other person change as we get to know them. I mean, really, that could go... Uh, to our wife or husband, couldn't it? As well as to a neighbor down the street who's moved in, who looks different, who may be an immigrant. Um, So in some ways, the stories all revolve around um, how a a stranger in our life forces us to understand ourselves better, understand our world better, let alone their culture. We often think that how wonderful we can meet strangers, but understand their culture. Well, I think it's a little trickier than that. I think meeting people of from different places, different beliefs and experiences often makes us really look at ourselves more. So I think that those are the more general ways in which living in other places has, has affected me. And by the way, in Saudi, I experienced hospitality unlike any I've ever experienced before. And the I joke that um, 
the Midwest is the closest to the hospitality of the of the Middle East. Um, just an incredible generosity on the part of people who didn't know us when we were lost and would drive for miles to take us someplace, buy us food we hadn't asked for. You know, yeah. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Meredith Ann Fuller. Do you have um, your own spiritual path that has been informed either by your life experience or elements of your own upbringing or what you've encountered along the way? Um, Let's see. How about a... um left-leaning Christian Buddhist. That would, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> where I might find myself today. Um, my parents um, were card-carrying communists in New York City, and I remember when they um, returned to their church, because they'd both been raised as Christians, and we were baptized, and we were a little bit older. So I was old enough to remember being baptized. I think I was five or six, and had, you know, very, very happy, positive experiences, in that case, in the Episcopal Church. And from early on, for whatever reason, monastic communities were very interesting to me. I think one of the reasons that um, I went to Buddhism, as did my husband train in, uh, in Buddhist meditation, is that it felt like a religion where you could have the experience that pretty much only monks and nuns had in the Christian world. That is, very long, serious retreats, long, silent, meditative retreats. Um, that was on offer more um, without one leaving the world, the secular world. But interestingly, I mean, after we, we ran a Buddhist center on the Cape for a while, we went to seminary and so on in a tradition that's Tibetan Buddhist. But as a matter of fact, next week I'll be doing a week-long self-directed retreat in large part for writing at a Benedictine monastery in Yankton, South Dakota. Um, and feel at the moment very drawn to um, spend retreat time in Benedictine monasteries, which have, of all the Catholic groups, um, had the closest um, or the, the most open ecumenical interest in the Buddhist world, in my experience. So, On the one hand, it would seem as if the mindfulness movement has perhaps caught on 
Mm-hmm. And and there's much to say about that that is good. I also wonder, though, if trends like that may end up co-opting in not just a secular way, but perhaps commercializing what is essentially a practice that I think is founded in something a little more spiritual, whether it's Buddhist or monastic in, in some sense. How do you uh, perhaps structure your Buddhist center in a way that aligns a little more with your own thinking about how mindfulness or, or this thoughtfulness should be practiced? Well, we're not affiliated right now with any Buddhist center. We, I, 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 this may sound um, casual, I don't think it is, but I feel that we were taught that the that you needed to take the teachings and decide how they applied to your life, and that might at some point mean not particularly continuing on with attending um, conferences or um, lectures or teachings, but finding what practices you wanted to continue in your life and how they would integrate. I think what I have used my Buddhist teachings a lot, my mindfulness awareness trainings in as a therapist, not not um, in terms of trying to enlist people in Buddhist um, concepts, but just simply as a way to work. As you know, it's very popular now, how to work with anxiety, how to work with stress, how to quiet the mind, how to realize that you're more than the sum of your thoughts. I would say that it's probably just fine that... Um, if something's lost there, that's okay, because if somebody needs that mindfulness awareness practice and it's helpful to them, that's great. And a, a true Buddhist would be the first to say, that's great. You don't have to become anything more than that. But if it inspires you to find out more about how meditation leads you to a different understanding of yourself and others in reality, you might go farther, you might study. I would say, you know, all mindfulness awareness practices have a, quote, spiritual element. If by spiritual, you mean that they put you more in touch with your real experience in this world and with your prejudices um, and hopes and fears. You know, you described yourself earlier as um, a liberal Christian Buddhist (laughs) that has spent time living in many different cultures and had encounters in in all sorts of different countries. You are a trained psychologist, psychoanalyst, who is also an author of novels and poetry, and you appreciate culture of many stripes. But you've also pointed out some of the ironies of a binary world. How do you make sense of being such a multifaceted person in a world that is black or white, zeros and ones? Well, if if anybody... Um, and uh, there'd be moments when if somebody would do a lobotomy to remove some of that complexity from my brain, I'd be deeply grateful. I actually think um, of it as times as a burden um, when to, to find myself seeing things from various different points of view. And that may be why when I'm not actively writing on, on a current story, I feel more neurotic because there's no place to go with all those different voices and points of view. So um, I think it's kind of uncomfortable to be seeing things from a lot of different points of view. I, I'm not trying to to say that I'm so special that I can bear that discomfort. I'm trying to say I think it makes me very uncomfortable too. And I think it's very wonderful when we have those brief moments when things are black and white. It's just terrific for a brief moment at least. 
Yeah. You once told me that it was a mystery how and why some characters came to you. And your description just then of being a multifaceted personality, and I, I don't mean that in, in a psychological sense, but um, having so many different interests and skills and talents and experiences, uh, it, it just made me wonder if part of the solution to that mystery of how and why these characters come to you is what you just suggested in some ways, this idea that in hidden ways, they are a way that you can wrestle with and surface and present and make sense of who you are. I'm sure that's true. What flashed in my mind was being stuck in a canoe with my grandmother um, on Lake, Sh Lake um, I'm not sure which lake in Vermont it was, frankly, but it was a lake in Vermont and the wind had come up and I was having difficulty rowing this quite heavy woman at the other end of the canoe back to shore. And I, I don't think I was more than 10 or something. And she was telling me all the things that were wrong with my father. And I was no, I knew my mother's history with this grandmother, um, and uh, who was her mother, and and that this grandmother had been quite abusive to my own mother. And here I was thinking about my grandmother, who I love, sitting with my grandmother, who I love, but was a literal burden at that moment as I tried to get her to shore and to get myself to shore, and also holding in mind my mother's painful childhood with her. And the fact that that woman had lost a son whose name I bore, Meredith, um, Meredith Sidner, and the fact that my father and mother were on the shore and that they lived with this grandmother quite close by in Vermont. Um, and there was a lot of conflict. So the fact that that popped up right now, I think somewhat answers your question, is that writing is a wonderful way to get inside different people's heads and hopefully make it possible for a reader to feel some empathy, even with, you know, a pretty fractured character. I love that response, but perhaps I'm now going to invert my own philosophy here, and I, I, I think some of the grander and nobler intent by turning to the commercial aspects, because I, I think that this broadcast will go out fairly close to Christmas. Who should be the reader that should be acquiring the book, Quarry? Well, that's kind of you. Um, I think you can see already that the main characters in the book span the age of eight to 80s when you meet them. And by the end of the book, there are people in their 90s who are, are still being forced to grow if you're, or are growing in spite of themselves as they are pressured by younger people in their family. So I think that um, since there's some explicit sexual material and some traumatic material, you'd want a, a mature 16-year-old, um, say, to be your youngest reader. And then I would say right up to dementia, you know, we could say that you might be a reader of the book. <laughs>
And if you're interested in family and you're interested in how family heals or doesn't heal its secrets um, and how generations often help each other to do that, you know, that's, I think, a, I would hope, a motivation for bringing yourself to the book. What have been some of the reactions to the book, either from the professional critical circle uh, and maybe from some of the people that have attended your readings? Well, we were thrilled to hear that um, Corey was selected as one of the um, 100 uh, best indie books of 2017 by Kirkus Reviews, and that um, by, at the time that this show is probably broadcast, that will be um, published on, on Kirkus's site, but I haven't been putting it on my sites yet. Um, so I've been very happy about that, and I think that People, people give me a, a range of experiences. Um, mostly I hear about their love for the characters, which pleases me a lot. In one case, um, somebody was furious with the character and said that she was very disappointed that, you know, this character had behaved as he had towards his children. And in a way, it made the book difficult for her. So it stirs people up. People say things like they go on living with these characters afterwards, or they're sorry to say goodbye to them, or... Um, as you can see already, it is a interwoven, you know, a mystery involving several generations with flashbacks in their histories. So it 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 demands something of you. It's not an, a terribly easy read. I like to think it's a compelling read, but I'm not sure it's an easy read. I am reading it, and I'm finding it rather compelling and mesmerizing. Uh, and also one or two places, one or two characters, a little exasperating too. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's <laughs> any yes. good creative work should do that, right? I think so. Yeah, I think exasperating characters, especially if you can see where they're coming from eventually, as long as they aren't the only people you're dealing with, can add texture to a story. One final question. What have you learned or taken away from either the, the craft of creating the novel or from the story and the characters themselves? Um, that I'm shyer than I thought. I mean, I'm happiest when I'm writing, and in some ways I identify with the shyer characters in the book as intensely as with the young protagonist who's trying to find out the secrets in her family. Um, the to even the modest amount of book touring I'm doing, it tires me. And as for what the the characters are giving me, it just seems endless. I feel as if I go on learning things about them and largely from readers, because that's when the book is alive, is when someone's reading it. And the rest of the time it's just this this lump sitting there. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with the multifaceted and delightful Meredith Ann Fuller. Thank you for being in the show today. Thanks so much, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. 
The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.